Today on Rebuilders, we are looking at one of the biggest news events of the last couple of weeks, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and the royal funeral. But we aren't looking at it um, just to talk about it, but we are looking at it from more of a meta view. Yeah, looking at it through, I think, the frameworks of this podcast and asking the question, moments of great public mourning like this over the loss of a, a head of state, a monarch, or even at times of a great you know, public tragedy, these moments are actually quite revealing. Mm. And so what does this reveal about a grey zone moment, but specifically the grey zone between religion and secularism? Yeah, it's a great chat. We hope you enjoy it. If you want to know more about the resources that were referred to in this episode, you can sign up to our mailing list at rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both going? Um, I'm very good, thanks. Yep, doing great over here, thank you. Excellent. Yep. You and your arm and croissant over there? Mm-hmm, yep. I'm um, living into the, the new land that we've landed in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with, that was smooth. Thank you. Um, pastry land. Pastry land. <laughs> yeah, but he's joined. I joined. Welcome. Mark. Mark is in exile. He's exiled. I'm in exile. I didn't, I didn't today. I may in the future. But you did mention that you noticed that, and this is actually not a joke, that last week when we re-established uh, pastries that actually our numbers of listeners went up. Mm. There is a portion of you out there who just listen for the pastry talk. Yeah. yeah. So, bless you. We've yeah. got other good content as well you <laughs> can stick around for. Yeah. That's why I'm not eating because there, there are greater <laughs> things than pastries. Ah, yeah. there indeed. But I did, uh, I did pick up the pastries this morning and there was a gentleman there with his jacket at the cafe, jacket all like tucked in, lapel tucked in. Mm. Mm. And it was just one of those things. I was like, if that was me, I'd want someone to tell me that that's tucked in. And so I told him and he fixed it. Was he so grateful? He was, yeah. He said, thank you. He said, I, I was rushing out the door on my way to get a coffee, just chucked the jacket on. And um, so thank you, kind sir. You are literally and the he- fabric that holds together our society. <laughs> <laughs> just doing my part, just yeah. doing my part. Yeah, mm. it's the little things. Mm. Or you're untucking the fabric that holds together our society <laughs> either way. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Well, good on you, Daniel, for your contribution to um, our local government area. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So today we are talking about something that's been happening, uh, well, that I guess has been present in the media worldwide Mm. uh, for the last couple of weeks. What are we talking about? We're going to talk about the Queen's passing Mm -hmm. and obviously recognise the Queen as the head of state of mm. Australia mm-hmm. and many of the countries listening, New Zealand, Canada, UK, Caribbean nations. Um, uh, so, but what we want to talk about is there's obviously lots in the media about this yeah. um, and all kinds of debates, republicanism versus monarchism, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, what we're just not going to do is not so much talk about those things in particular, but really what I want to talk about is the way in which the mourning period Mm. around the Queen's passing actually reveals something. Periods Mm. of mourning reveal something. And I want to talk about how we have a theme here of the idea of a grey zone, um, which is this in-between period between between eras. But I want to take the term grey zone and actually say that periods of mourning actually uh, can sometimes reveal that in our culture there's a grey zone between faith and religion Mm -hmm. and spirituality and secularism. Interesting. 
often we talk about uh, this very clear division between those who have faith and those who don't, religion and secularism, sacred, profane, and as if there's some sort of very clear border, like a line on a map. Mm. But it's really interesting um, that at periods like this, when there's sort of a communal sense of loss, um, that really challenges a sort of concept of, of how we think about belief and unbelief. And to talk about this, it, it's interesting to go back to a previous wedding, uh, sorry, previous funeral associated with the royal family, and that's when uh, Princess Diana, um, the former Princess of Wales, passed away in 1997 mm-hmm. um, at the age of 36. She um, was obviously you know, estranged somewhat from the royal family and her marriage had fallen apart with Charles. Um, she was dating Dodi Fayed at the time and was killed in a car accident in Paris in a tunnel. Um, sort of uh, fleeing from the paparazzi, uh, mm. getting across the city. And it was really interesting at that time because what happened was there was this almost organic outpouring of grief yeah, uh, all around the world, but particularly in Britain. And what you saw was almost these sort of spontaneous ways that the public responded to that moment. Yeah. One was the flowers that were placed at the front of Buckingham Palace and also Kensington Palace, which sort of just grew and grew. It was Mm-mm. just huge amounts of um, flowers. A few, I can't remember exactly how long before, but maybe a few weeks or a month or something before uh, Princess Diana was killed in that car accident, she um, was seen comforting Elton John, the singer, at I think it was Gianni Versace's um, funeral. Yeah. Uh, Gianni Versace, the fashion director or fashion, you know, inventor of the Versace brand and fashion designer, um, was murdered, um, I think, in, in Italy. And uh, there was this very public scene of, Princess Diana comforting uh, uh, Elton John. So then at uh, Diana's funeral, it was this really interesting space where you had these elements that were sort of traditional, but then you also had these elements which were responding very much to the public's uh, sort of outpouring of grief. And there's mm. that famous line, I think it was in the interview with Martin Bashir, where um, Princess Diana said, uh, you know, he asked her, do you think you'll ever be queen? And she said, I don't know if I'll ever be queen, but I want to be the queen of hearts of of the people. Mm. And so when she passed away, you had this, yeah, this organic response. But a number of people noted at the time, it was so huge, it like tapped into something bigger. Yes. So there's obviously the death of this this public figure, but it tapped into something more significant. Now, one of the ways that um, some people looked at this, particularly from, I guess, some of the territory in which we explore on mm. this podcast and sort of religion and culture, is that this was a manifestation of um, a term called implicit religion. Okay. Uh, implicit religion comes from a, a, a vicar, um, an academic called Edward Bailey. And Edward Bailey was the vicar of an English parish. And so he's an Anglican minister. But before he was an Anglican minister, he also uh, worked in a pub. Uh, and he noticed that in the pub, uh, he worked about 400 hours and that there was very much, and obviously as a vicar in training or whatever, he understood liturgy and, mm. and worship and all this sort of stuff. And But he noticed that in some ways that the pub had its own forms of liturgy. Yeah. When someone walked in the door, people would, heads would turn to face whoever walked in the door. There was sort of a, a, almost a hierarchy around how much you could hold your drink. There were certain things people said. The bartender was almost like a kind of priest handing out the sacrament of alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, so he noticed that, hang on, there's almost this sort of sense of meaning. He said that in over 400 hours, there was only once ever when someone came in to drink because they were thirsty. 
Mm. And so, he felt there was actually something more going on that what the pub was doing was providing people with this sense of deeper meaning and almost there was a kind of spirituality. So, he sort of posited this idea of implicit religion, which is it's a, almost a form of personal spirituality which is not articulated. Now, uh, Peter Briley, Briley, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce his last name, but he's also written on implicit religion. And he says this, he says, implicit religion is internal. It is the religion of any person in the world and what she or he considers his or her religion to be. Now, this is interesting key points. It's emotional rather than logical, felt rather than reasoned. It's personal, not impersonal, and thus individualized, consistent with a postmodern world. Now, again, going back to the way we often talk about the rise of secularism, you know, I recently saw some stats around America and people said, oh, the religious nuns are rising and Christians are dropping and there's going to be some crossover point where America becomes this post-religious culture. But almost when you look at implicit religion, what you see is there's a much bigger gray zone, a sort of no man's land between mm. the two sides of religion and irreligion. And in that space, this is some of the sort of sentiments around life after death, when, when you know, someone who perhaps doesn't have religion and a grandmother dies, what do they tell their children? You know, yeah. granny's gone to be with the angels. You know, you hear people talk at, at, at funerals in, in these particular ways that, you know, that person's died but they've gone on to be a star. They're watching mm -hmm. us now. You could also look at the ways that things like UFOs, uh, ghosts, um, belief in psychic abilities, also are in this really interesting space between sort of belief and unbelief. Mm. So it's, it's much more – um, gray zone uh, <laughs> space between these two things. So what happens then that when you have these moments of, say, communal mourning, um, which could be something like, um, you know, the death of Princess Diana or even the death of the Queen, mm. it can be at moments of existential threat. I think particularly in our country around natural disasters like bushfires, um, moments of war, conflict, um, uh, you, you see the the this almost tension between the existential reality of people having an implicit religion and an implicit spirituality and how they do that in the personal. But then there comes this time where we've got to then live that out socially in a social space with others. Mm. So Princess Diana was an interesting example of that where people were like, we've got to do something. It was very felt and uh, it had these almost these pop culture elements, the Elton John song where he played at the funeral. Um, uh, that, I don't know if I said this earlier when it brought up Elton John, but the point of that, at the funeral, he then played Candle in the Wind and I think it went to number one for ages, yes, the song. Yeah, I remember was, that. You know, Goodbye, England's Rose. He changed the words of it. So it was this almost – that was like your implicit religion. If you think about it, it's sort of a pop song is very romantic and there's sort of this, this love uh, sort of concept but also this sort of therapeutic individualized sense around it. So it was almost like at that moment what Elton John had done was provide a communal foci, focus point for that implicit religion that so many people felt yes. or the putting of flowers somewhere. Um, so, you know, an another example would be I saw quite disturbing footage the other day of um, uh, I saw online of um, after 9-11 in, in New York, I think it was at Radio City Hall, they, they had um, a concert of playing John Lennon songs. It was mm. disturbing because Kevin Spacey um, was leading and he, and he he was like the MC for the night and he ended up singing the John Lennon song Mind Games, which is very bizarre and disturbing, his allegations in Me Too and all that. Mm -hmm. But um, 
uh, you know, like, what do we do? This thing's happened to our city. Oh, we need to do something. Yes. And, and oh, let's have a oh, John Lennon, Imagine. You know, the song Imagine is a classic yes. sort of epitome of this sort of implicit religion concept. Okay, so that's implicit religion. Um, yeah, does that resonate? Did, uh, am I capturing that? Do you guys get the sense of, of what that is is covering? I think so. I think um, what your explanation reminds me of is where we've talked before about, you know, everyone has something that they're worshipping. So if it's it's not God, then Mm. what is it? Who is it? Mm. Um, Where is it the self? Is it whatever? And but in times of, of tragedy, people don't know where to turn or how to process it. Yes. Um. So yeah, you have these the, this emergence of implicit religion to deal yes. with it or to process it. Yes. Um. It also makes me think of sport. I mean, yes. we're coming up to the AFL Grand Final here in Melbourne, and mm-hmm. I, I've had I remember someone saying to me that that is their religion mm. back when I was uh, teaching. I was chatting with a colleague about how I attended church and what that looked like for me, and he's like, "Oh yeah, sports my religion." Yeah. That is that's what I believe in, and I yes. live for. And I'm like, wow. And and even even um, people who've studied implicit religion talk about sport. You yeah, know, you think about yeah, we've got our big Australian Rules Grand Final coming up, and you know there is a whole liturgy. <laughs> yeah, from the national anthem, they always get a celebrity out to sing. You yes. know, like um, it's just it's a whole day. And even I caught the train in the city, and I went past the Melbourne Cricket Ground um, on Monday, and you know they're already been setting up for almost weeks. You know, all the yes. sort of tents around it. It's and there'll be people pilgrimaging in. Yes, from around Australia for that. Yeah, but even you know they talk about with sport. You know, the idea of like. In Australia, particularly, you know, getting kids into sport. Sport is almost this catechism, this this discipleship, this formation into mm. particular values. You yes. Know? Um, you know, you look and say, you know, in soccer, people singing in unison, and and even the way that, like, at the FA Cup final, they sing "Abide with Me," which is a hymn. But even some of the, yeah. the football songs are like repurposed hymns yes. and songs yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Um, really interesting. And also on the point about. Um, the like a pub um is what how how did you describe it as a um like a liturgy yeah that there's a liturgy um it kind of goes back to what you were talking about last week with um institutions mm. and how we every institution has its its traditions and its yes. forms that people um ascribe to and you know um carry on to mm. be a part of this um, institution and so equally with this implicit religion, there are mm. those um, practices that form it and people drawn to the institution of whatever yes. that um, religion is. Yeah. I mean, just to return to that definition, yeah, and uh, one way of understanding institution is a repeated pattern yes. that you do that has some kind of meaning or sacredness yeah. to it. Um, that is aimed at a future flourishing. So mm. the pub might be that sense of community. Um, the sporting, getting a kid into hockey is like, well, we've always done this and this builds good character and teamwork and discipline mm. and fitness towards that end. You know, you have, yeah, the sport, all these things. So this is where you realize that the actual the lines between institutions, orders, practices, religion, it's all very blurred. Yes. It's all in the sort of gray zone. Now, what's interesting is, so that was 1997, the implicit 
you know, religion that really came to the fore during um, the sort of mourning that happened around Princess Diana. Then when you have the Queen, in many ways it sort of rem- triggers those those memories. You know, that's, that's yeah. the nearest, you know, the Queen, Britain's not had the death of a monarch um, for a very long time. Australia has not had one, either, you know, also as a, a – you know, the Queen is our head of state for a long time. Yes. So you haven't got a sort of lived memory of what that looks like since, you know, was it when she came to the – when her father died. Um, so it's interesting that almost you saw some of those forms begin to take hold of yes. different ways that people were sort of responding and and, it, and we'll talk about this in a second, but very different ways in different um, – uh, in Britain compared to, I would say, even some of the Commonwealth realms and stuff like mm. that and so on. Um because in some ways, you know, you could argue the Queen was the most famous person in the world. So even in countries that weren't former Commonwealth realms, you had this almost idea of celebrity or this well-known yes. person and so on. Um, but what's really interesting is you watched the – and I think, Daniel, you didn't watch the funeral, but Liddy and I both watched – actually, we, I think you were babysitting for, for Daniel. I was. Melody, I was. Thank you. Um, so you I watched, watched on your it. television. <laughs> yes. Um, where were you guys? You were out. You know, I was catching up with some old friends. There you go. Lovely. Mm. Um, So, um, you know, you had that expectation and having seen the the funeral of Diana and then like the the, uh, sort of day, you know, this this – Day I went for like nine hours. Um, you know, I didn't watch it all. Yeah, I didn't watch it because of the time. I watched the first part of the funeral, and then when they they sort of handed the um, coffin over to the hearse, I yes. went to bed. But Same. Um, what struck me was, you know, it started and they had the coverage here on on the Australian. It was on all the channels, and and you know they were talking. You, know, they were, they were, you were waiting for the service to begin, and they were, you know it's Justin Trudeau, and you know, there's all these different people coming in, mm. and sort of like there's the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and you know, so it was, it was a little bit celebrity sort of vibe as everyone was sort of filing into the. Um, uh, uh, you know, church and, you know, obviously the Meghan Markle thing and all that, you know, they're sort of following that. And then it was like the service began and it was just like full pelt uh, sort of civil religion, high church, you know, sort of moment. Yes. And, yeah. it, you know, it was almost people talked about it was like jarring, you know, it was like they had the, the cross they were marching in and all the royal orb and scepter and, and the liturgy and the songs and the, the choir. So it was yeah. almost like it was really different in some ways to, to Diana's um, funeral and what it was. This is not implicit religion. This yeah. is this is very much civil religion and it's this, you know, concept that of the constitutional monarchy, Queen is the defender of faith and, and sort of head of the Anglican church and, and you know, you had different members of, you know, the Presbyterian church speaking yeah. and so on. And you realise like, no, this is this is the whole thing of the fabric of, of Britain and looking out into the Commonwealth. And so – Often you then have these very established civil religion forms. You know, in America you might see this if you go to a place like you know Washington, you see these different you know Congress and and you know these buildings and you see the flags and there's mm. this sense of civil religion where it's 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 less organic, it's more communal um, than than uh, uh, sort of the implicit religion. And in some ways, if you, if you can think about it, in some ways, implicit religion and civil religion is actually this in some ways you could look at it, it's like the in the 18th century um, awakenings you had this sort of tension where you had people who were sort of following high anglicanism 
And uh, uh, then you had the enthusiasts, like people like you know uh, John Wesley, and some of the complaints made at John Wesley is like you're, you're dealing with this sort of very felt, real faith in your private life. You shouldn't yes. be doing that. Versus here's what we all do in public: yeah. do what you want in your private life. But there's this tension between the public and private. But I think what we what we're seeing is this sense that at this moment that there is this crisis that's happening to secularism, the story we've told ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways what the, what's happened uh, as the Queen has passed, it's revealed all these things that were already in tension and, and sort of this, this grey zone between religion, unbelief, all of it is sort of coming to the surface. And, and what I began to wonder is we've talked before about civilizational states mm. and the concept that you have these nations like China, Russia, um, India, which are going in a very different direction to the concept of, say, the liberal multicultural West, um, where what they're saying is we're going to build a society all around you know, a particular form of often religion, as in India, Hinduism, yep. e- ethnicity, which China is doing with you know Han ethnicity in Russia, with this sense of history and Russianness, and saying we're actually going to build an identity as a state or even as a civilization around these particular things. Now, Christopher Coker in his book on the civilizational state says, civilizational states are primarily things which non-Western leaders are doing in contrast to the liberal democracies of the West. But I've just been wondering in the last sort of week or two, as I've watched the the Queen's um, sort of period of mourning, that you see some people who are like, hang on, this is revealing that we need this stuff. We need the monarchy. We need these symbols. And maybe they're not perfect, but they're this continuity to history. And there actually are these Christian roots to it. And this is a constitutional democracy. And in Australia, you know, as in New Zealand, as in many of the Caribbean nations, as in Canada, there's conversations about republic. Should we have a republic? Should we have a constitutional monarchy? It's interesting. Mm. I noticed that um, the Age newspaper here in Melbourne published the latest polls and actually support for a a, a republic has gone down. And and the republic would lose in every state barring ours, Victoria, shock horror. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, so you're seeing this period of mourning where people are looking at the monarchy. Oh, This is actually something we need. We need Mm. this bigger story. And, you know, you saw the... The, uh, we had a number of people write us messages about this, but like people lining up for 13 hours to view the Queen's body and people saying it's like a pilgrimage. It's like something mm. they wanted to do. And and even I've heard people here in Melbourne like, oh, if I was there, I would have gone. And people actually flew over from, from Australia to go and do this. So you've got that one side of it, like, hang on, this is something which we've lost. We need to recapture this. Mm. But then you've got this other conversation as well of, hang on, this is connected to a whole different story. There was, there was, you know, issues of empire and and yep. colonialism, yep. and and what does that mean? And if we're going to go back into history, we also need to deal with that. And yeah. and who do we want to be post this? And you're seeing, interestingly, there was a sort of meme online um, of the Queen's crown and the scepter and um, the orb. And all the different jewels and stuff, which was actually taken from various colonies, you know, Australia and South Africa and India. And online you had, you know, Indians demanding, I think it's the ruby back. And, you know, so, but all of this is in a sense then starts to ask the question, what do we want to be collectively? And I think the tensions in the sort of liberal democratic uh, state, which has tried to be secular, which is like, you do your own thing, believe what you want to believe. The basic minimum of belonging is you got a passport and you got a social security number. 
all of a sudden for everyone, what the Queen's period of mourning has done is like, hang on, there is bigger uh, things that humans desire, meaning, story, identity. Uh, it's all at play in there. So in a sense, I began to wonder, I'm not going to say here that the West is becoming a civilizational state, but I'm almost wondering now if we're, if we're something is happening that is is like a flirting with the civilizational state. So are you suggesting that – so you've, you've kind of said two things, that um, the West is now uh, challenged with this idea of uh, seeking out what their corporate identity is. Yes. But at the same time questioning whether they want a corporate identity or they want separate ones. Yes, yes. And, and, what, and maybe yeah. wanting both. Like or, or um, so for example, like I, I think what is falling down – now, now, is is a kind of again? If we're in a grey zone, we're moving out of a pre previous era. Yes. Now, as I watched the funeral, something struck me. There was a bit where around when I went to bed, which was when they'd walked um, with the carriage, the gun carriage, with the queen's coffin, and there was a bunch of soldiers, uh, I think sailors, and and they Navy, walked, yep. and they walked through the streets of London, and they walked past Buckingham Palace, and I think they got up to Green Park, and. They were transferring it to the hearse. So you could see all the sort of trees of Green Park and you could see, you know, there's obviously Buckingham Palaces near there and you've got Kensington Palace and 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 on the other side, you know, all this sort of stuff. So you've got mm -hmm. the sort of symbols of um, the royalty, the yes. palaces. Yeah. Now, where they'd also just come from is Westminster where you've got the symbols of parliament. Yes. Now, the symbols of parliament and the symbols of, of, of the palace went to war in the 17th century. Yeah, right. Um, you had the English Civil War where the forces of parliament then uh, basically went to battle against the king and you had Charles I uh, actually was executed um, by the forces of parliament and Oliver Cromwell became the sort of um, uh, was it Lord Protector or whatever of um, Britain. So Britain was a republic for mm -hmm. a period there. So two forces, parliament versus royalty. But as you're looking at Green, Green Park, and the, the view that they had on on our coverage was you could see behind the City of London. Now, there's the City of London, as most people understand it, but when people say the City of London, that's also sort of shorthand for the financial centre of London. Mm -hmm. So there's a third power in London. There's the royal power, there's yes. the parliament, parliamentary power, and then there is the City of London, which if you go back in history – has really, in many ways, could be argued as the seedbed of global capitalism. You could argue it's the seedbed of the vision of the world as we understand it now, through yeah. mercantilism and and finance and cross borders. And mm -hmm. in many ways, you could even argue that empire doesn't so much go back to parliament and and uh, uh, the royalty as you could argue that with entities like the East India Company, which was this first, in a sense, global corporation mm -hmm. that went across the world and and um, you know sort of colonized parts of um, India, and they had their own army. They had literally a corporate army, the East India Company army. So in some ways, maybe that was the civilizational state we were living under before. Right. But we didn't, it didn't have a name. Susan Strange um, uh, was, I think, a political scientist. Um, and she had this interesting concept about a civilizational state that we were under. This is uh, Christopher Corker talking about Susan Strange. But he says this. He says, Susan Strange wrote an article about what she chose to call business civilization a term she coined to describe an informal grouping of transnational corporations 
business school graduates, and international agencies such as the World Trade Organization. It constituted something new, a globalized community of bankers and financiers who spent their time cooling their heels in airport lounges, business lounges, or attending meetings of the World Economic Forum at Davos. So she's saying there that in a sense, the history of that comes out of the city of London, the mm -hmm. financial center of London, goes across the world. And this has been the dominant thing since 1989, since communism fell, and you see the rise of this globalized world, this sort of trans, like think about popular culture, think about social media, think about fashion, all hugely determined by the wants and needs of this sort of global business civilization that she's speaking about, even yeah. the way that people look at their lives, what's self-help, all its sort of productivity, the entrepreneur as a figure of sort of, uh, you know, almost the cultural aspiration that you can be, the sort of concept of individualism, of experientialism, of consumerism. And in a sense, I began to wonder that any sort of form of government that has a power it has a social contract with the people. So, for example, mm. social contract theory is that you give up some of your freedom so the state will provide security and provide you with things. Yeah. Now, when social contracts fall, that's often when you have revolutions. Now, we've had an implicit uh, social contract with business civilization. Yes. That, all right, we'll give up our freedom. We'll say goodbye to the big stories. We'll say goodbye to the bigger, almost religious narratives and yeah. things of our life and even community and relationship if you keep delivering us stuff. But now as the world sort of comes to this, in a sense, a crisis of business civilization, crisis of globalization, crisis of, uh, you know, the cost of living and inflation and we're looking ahead and people can't afford a house and, and people are wondering if in 10 years we're going to be worse off than we were 10 years ago, mm. that the, the implicit social contract that business civilization has with us is failing. Mm. So people are looking for something more. There's an interesting article in Reuters this week which said that Chinese young adults are now basically moving into simple living and they're spending less and they're creating this new way of living. And I think that's happening, that part of our whole model of business civilization was that people would continue to, the economy would continue to grow, your opportunities yes. would continue to grow, your experiences would grow. When that stops, a crisis is created so this is why I think that we're now beginning to to perhaps turn a gazing eye back to other civilizational forms as the West. So you're but you're also suggesting that this is that civilizational states or this flirtation is taking numerous forms. Yes. What so, do you mean? Okay. So so one could be um, you know, as we've seen in this like royal mourning where mm -hmm. in Britain there's this question of what it is to be. That's going all throughout the Commonwealth now. You know, what what are we, you know, is should we cling to the past and tradition? And even online there was sort of like talks that Prince Charles had spoken about, you know, tradition versus modernity and him arguing for tradition and people like, oh, this is amazing. Check this out, you know, yeah, right. call him the based king and all this sort of stuff. Um, but then you look at other things like the freedom movement, which sort of came out of, um, I guess some of the reactions to various lockdowns and pandemics yep. where you saw people marching through Melbourne with American flags and Union Jacks and Australian flags mm. and New Zealand flags. You know, you've seen that in, in, in Canada, you know, this sort of almost wanting to turn to the West as an identity. So it's not, it's not the Commonwealth royal thing. It's sort of turning to the West and the West's sort of um, legacy of liberty and freedom. Mm -hmm. That's almost the sort of kind of civil religion that you've seen, or sorry, yeah. implicit religion implicit, that you've yeah. seen. Um, you could argue that the US culture war is actually a war over what kind of civilizational state are we going to be? Are we going to turn back to this sort of more MAGA, 
um, Christian nationalist or economic nationalist populist sort of model that you see, you know, Steve Bannon talking about. Um, or is it going to, you could argue that sort of the woke thing is almost its own sort of civilizational state. Yeah. It has its own flags, its idea of the human self. It has this idea of vision and a uh, vision of justice and it's translocational. You know, you see people who identify with that more than they would identify with their own sort of national identity or yeah. local identity, yeah, yeah. dress the same, act the same, same opinions is really interesting. And then you, 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 you see this almost really interesting, I think, in many of the Commonwealth states, um, as they question, when I grew up um, in every government building in my school, there was a picture of the Queen. Mm. You would see that in, in my primary school. You'd see that when you go to the local town hall. You'd see that in the local return service men and service women's leagues, buildings, um, sporting clubs. But it's interesting how you've seen a slow changing where increasingly that sort of public imagery that often is a part of, say, civil religion is being replaced now by much more indigenous forms. Yeah. That when I was in New Zealand recently, I just noticed how since I haven't been there since the pandemic, but you know, you hear more Maori spoken um, mm. by people who aren't Maori. Like you, you see more forms that are coming into the public space, yeah. um, and you're seeing that in Australia more. And on the news now, they have the English names and the, and the indigenous language names. And so, even uh, I, I noticed a, a book like there's books coming out, like sort of almost indigenous wisdom as sort of self-help or in how indigenous thinking can help in business. Yes. So in some ways, there's almost this sort of post-colonial form where we need something. We can't have an identity which is purely business culture. We don't want to be Britain. Yeah. You know, we don't want to be the colonial thing. Can actually sort of indigenous culture be a resource for us to find an identity, mm. which is really interesting because that's sort of been rejected by liberal democracy in the past and yes. multiculturalism, which didn't want to elevate one particular ethnicity or culture. But I think in this moment is this sort of looking across, it's like we need to replace this content-free vision with something. Yeah. I, I think what I find interesting about these um, numerous forms is some, like, and you've acknowledged, some are translocational. Mm. So you've got people who don't necessarily um, identify with their, the land in which mm. they live, but identify more with a with a people group. Yes. But then you've also still got the land and the nation trying to establish a meaning yes. um, collectively. And what how how do you do that when yes. you have such a a variety um, of of disparate views of what it means to find identity? So this is the tension that the English political writer David Goodhart. Goodhart. What a lovely name. Goodhart. There's a Goodhart. Um, David Goodhart brings out in his book um, where he talks about, I've forgotten the title of the book, but he talks about the anywheres and the somewheres. Mm -hmm. The somewheres are people who are defined by a particular place, a land. You know, They're defined by a community. That's what their, yeah. their identity is connected to. And then the anywheres. The anywheres are the, the sort of international business collective, you yeah, know, business yeah. civilization who can move. So definitely we see those tensions. Interesting, Thomas Friedman also wrote a book, I think it was called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. Similar concept. There were the people who just wanted the olive tree that their ancestors had had for hundreds of years. You know, that was what was valued to them. Mm -hmm. Again, piece of land, history, people. And then the people who, no, they just want a Lexus. <laughs> um, so I think you're right. That that tension between those two things is is evident everywhere in the world at this time. So what are you seeing? Um, how is this flirtation putting pressure on secular modernity? 
Yeah, there's a couple of ways that you're just seeing what I think these are, again, too, I'm not saying secular modernity is falling over, but there's definitely some pressures coming against yeah. it. Um, so, so one is um, our focus is turning backwards. Modernity is all about the future. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about shaping the future. Science fiction, you know, a bright future. Um, and uh, But what we're seeing is this looking backwards increasingly in the mm. West. Um, you know, on one hand, you've got this sort of people who are like, let's have a conservative return to tradition. There's online, there was some little videos of Charles III, uh, King Charles now, uh, mm. uh, basically talking about the importance of tradition over modernity and like yeah, these right. young internet guys like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so this this look at the monarchy. This is what we need, you know, at times like this in, in, when everything's up in the air. On the left, you've got, you know, an increasing conversation around, you know, post-colonialism mm. and, and the Queen's Mourning raises those questions, which again, though, is a looking backwards. Yes. Um, and so, you know, looking back to the past, dealing with the wrongs of the past. And it's to me, it's, it's in really stark contrast to what's happening in Asia. I mm-hmm. recently was just, I've got a little phone that uh, – app, app my, I've got a little phone. <laughs> it's, yeah. tiny. it's tiny. It's, it's tiny. It's phone. too small to dial. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an app on my phone called Feedly where I just read all these newspapers around the world and, and there was all these different Asian newspapers came up. And what struck me, in contrast to the West, it was all about crypto, virtual reality, EVs, yeah. future, 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 future. Um, and you know, I've read research which says you know Asian young people are much more future focused now uh, yeah. in Asia um, than people in the West, and it's really interesting how you know that sort of view is looking backwards. Just just one other um, so sorry yeah so the 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 modernity is face forward. We're increasingly looking backwards. So that's one way in which the story of an inevitable secular future, a bright shiny utopia, that's starting to falter as our, we're more dealing with the, the problems of the past and what yeah. we can get from the past. Yeah, okay. Just one other thing, I just I don't even know how to describe this, but it, it struck me, <laughs> a phenomenon. Um, I took my boys to the museum mm. um, this week and uh, just a fascinating dynamic that I saw in the museum. On, on, on the second level of the Melbourne Museum, there's a whole section called The Body and Evolution. Mm-hmm. So again, to museums, the history of them, very much an enlightenment um, sort of institution. Yeah. Um, I think about uh, the history of natural natural history museum in London, which is almost like a temple, and it's interesting that the sort of you walk in and then they've sort of on this elevated bit, sitting almost in this throne like an idol is Charles Darwin. Fascinating. Oh wow. Um, so it's almost like this temple to sort of you know empirical thinking and reason mm. and scientific inquiry. So that's very much the sort of vibe of the second level of the Melbourne Museum and how the body and and tells the story of evolution. Mm-hmm. But then on the first uh, floor, there's um, quite a good sort of First Nations, First Peoples section telling the Indigenous history um, of uh, our state of Victoria yeah. and, and of Melbourne, the Kulin Nation and Wurundjeri people. And as, you, as you're walking through, a, a lot of it is about Creation stories, yeah. um, indigenous creation stories, and what I noticed is interesting. Understandably, the way it's not pitched now is it's not pitched as oh, here's what the myths of these you know people in sort of a very objectified distant sense. Mm. It's you know the creation myths or our creation myths because actually written in the voice um, yes. of of um, the First Nations people of our, our state and city. But I just thought this is fascinating. You've got two different things happening on two different levels. On one level, you've got the sort of 
objective presented modern enlightenment fact of evolution. But then on the first thing, there's this desire to have the voice of the first inhabitants of the land here tell the creation story. Mm. But again, it, it, it unintentionally creates attention yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. those two stories tell two different things. Yes. And, you know, traditionally like what modernity has done, and Leslie Newbigin talked about this, is it talks about the fact that, you know, there are objective truths and then there are values. Yeah. And I think out of respect for Indigenous um uh, people, Melbourne Museums has wanted the Indigenous people to speak in their voice, uh, which I think is a really healthy thing. But that's is that is that then a value that story? Yeah, is it a competing story? Is this a relativist thing? I don't think it's presented in those ways at all. But there's a natural contradiction in these two things. Yes, yes, and and I do wonder. You know, could you see in the future, you know, people looking to stories of of place and and creation? And so for me, it was, I think if you showed, if if you took someone from the 1960s or 70s and you walked them to the Melbourne Museum, they'd be really, you know, a scientist, they'd be really surprised to see the way that the creation stories are framed in that, in that. Um, uh, First Nations thing, mm. uh, First Nations um, exhibition. Um, yeah, it's it's just. Uh, are you guys getting? I, I haven't been able to put it into words, yeah. but it's a fascinating conundrum. Well, it's kind of if you <clears throat> if you didn't know anything about the First Peoples here in Australia, you didn't you weren't didn't know about evolution of the world, like the evolutionary theory, and you walked into that museum, you presented with two different. Yes. Almost competing narratives, narratives on yes. how the which world be, has come to be. Like, hang on, which one am I meant to be listening to or adhering to? And so that's, I feel like that's, that would be a natural tension. And I think the thing that, that I found interesting as well was perhaps in the 90s it would be like, oh, here's different stories, man, believe which one you yeah. want. But because there's an understandable desire to honour yes. the, the knowledge and 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 stories and, and, and tradition and culture of Indigenous people, it's, it's not presented as a value. It's yeah. not presented as just an alternate story to believe, man. Mm. So, but if, if objective truths, if the objective truth of enlightenment is that the evolutionary story is the dominant one, it actually means that the story on the first floor is wrong mm. and yeah. just, yeah. just a myth. So, no one wants to say that now <laughs> because that would be seen as exclusionary. exclusionary. So, there's an actual massive tension in the heart of the Melbourne Museum, yeah. which I think is representative of a tension of, of where the West is a, as a society is at. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way of um, of understanding this tension in a, within the confines of an institution or a building. Um, grey zone museum. Yeah, <laughs> the museum of the grey zone. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about how this flirtation with civilizational states is putting pressure on secular modernity. But how about the the opposite? How is yeah. secular modernity potentially fighting fighting against civilizational states or the building of that? Well, just look at China. China is attempting to build a civilizational state, but it has to have a great firewall of China to keep out mm-hmm. influences on the internet. Um, it's G is pushing back on what he sees as the individualism that is created by luxury brands and yeah. uh, a market economy. You know, he's changing the economy, but then in order to keep his social contract, um, you know, the Chinese sort of um, Politburo has predicted they need to keep making a five percent growth in their GDP every year, which is pretty optimistic. Yeah. They're not meeting that at this point in time. You know, will Xi's power continue if he can't deliver people 
a good economy. So that just shows even when you're building a civilizational state, you're mm. still under tremendous pressure. Yeah. Look at Russia's attempt to push its civilizational state into Ukraine and, and the defeats they've experienced in the last few weeks uh, in the war. Uh, individualism, uh, the market, um, the internet, the free exchange of ideas still comes, you know, like – the, the civilizational states are being built in a digital global network. Yes. <laughs> That's what's different to if you're building the Ottoman Empire, you yeah, know, yeah, 400 yeah. years ago or something. Um, so that's where, yes, the secular West, um, which tries to be content-free, is experiencing this pressure in one direction, but then also those who are trying to be civilizational states that are rich with content and narrative and story and symbolism and sacredness also feel a pressure. So, again, this is what's driving our grey zone moment. So ultimately, if I were to boil it down to a line, you're saying that really the the mask or masks of secularism are off. We're yes. seeing it for, for what it is perhaps or yes. more questioning what it has been. Yes. I mean, I think from our perspective, from a biblical perspective, yes. you know, we're not going to give you an answer now. Should we have a monarchy or a republic or <laughs> any of that stuff? Um, leave that for the listener to discern if you were from a – uh, a, a Commonwealth nation. A Commonwealth nation or a constitutional monarchy. Um, but I think that what we need to realise is we go back to what we spoke about last week, that humans build orders of repeated patterns and mm. we do things together. We're social creatures. We build patterns. We want those patterns to have sacredness and meaning. We tell stories around those patterns. Why? Because we go back to Genesis you know, 128, 126, where it talks about the fact that God – gives the human the command to mm. uh, it's one tree out you know god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over every other living creature that moves on the ground humans will always build humans will always pursue some kind of flourishing mm -hmm. they will always fill the earth and subdue it and so everything that humans do is religiously tinged, whether it's pointed towards God or not. Everything is a form of worship. Attention is worship, said the poet Mary Oliver. So everything that we do is worship. If you have a monarchy, um, in a sense, that becomes sort of a symbol, if you like, of the king of heaven. If you don't have a monarchy, you're going to create another king somewhere. That's not an argument for it to have a king or not. I think C.S. Lewis had a great quote that if you don't uh, have a king – you'll just end up creating celebrities as kings, you know. And when yeah, America okay. was founded, you know, one of the big conversations they had, Thomas Jefferson discussed, you know, should we call the president their majesty? You know, like because they didn't have to not do a king sort of thing. So that's, mm. again, I'm not making that as an argument for or against republic or monarchy. What I'm saying is humans seek meaning. Humans' hearts are constantly restless until they find their home in God. We're always going to build stuff. There is no secular neutral position to stand in the world. We're constantly building meaning. And I think we're at a really strategic point evangelistically, missiologically, because many of the structures of meaning and order that we built are now being shown up um, for their their contradictions and their weakness. So I think this is actually not a moment where the church needs to be sort of afraid mm. um, because maybe we're seeing an order falling or we're fearing the rise of, of secularism. I actually think secularism, I think the, the story particularly in the West and developing countries that we're told is looking particularly weak at the moment. I think we're going to see more of that. Grey zone is when everything's up in the air, but it's also yeah. an, an absolute opportunity-rich environment. Great. If there is one thing, sorry, great. Um, if there's one thing uh, to take away, I mean, I, you've you've ended on that um, the point of it being a um, 
evangelistically rich environment. But if there's one thing to take away for like a local church context and leading people in that space, what would you, what advice would you give? What, um, what perspective can leaders take on to help navigate or help others navigate this, this sort of gray zone space of understanding, Mm. um, that distinction between religion and secularism? Mm. I think that one thing that we're trying to do on here is to teach people missiology, to use the term. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about people like Leslie Newbegin who saw that, you know, he, he was at a conference and it was with different Christians from across the world mm. and there was a Western speaker speaking and he was sitting next to maybe someone from the Philippines. I can't, I can't remember what country it was. It was a non-Western country. And he heard as this Western person was talking and talking about the West and talking about Christianity, this this brother in Christ next to him who was not from the West whispered under their breath in frustration like, oh, the real question is can the West be converted? Yeah. And so there is the question that we are leading people in a form of discipleship. We're equipping them with a discernment as to understand that we need to be formed in the way of Jesus. Uh, John Tyson, who we've had on here before, a friend, you know, he sort of describes his discipleship process as counterformation. Yeah. And in a sense, we're counterforming people to the ways of the world, which are no longer going to be one thing. They're going to be legion. Yes. Yeah. And and contradictory and all contested and fighting against each other. We, in the midst of this, are forming people in the way of Jesus. And we're getting to do that with the lens of what in culture is helpful, what is neutral, what is unhelpful. Yeah. And, and you know, that's the task in this next season. We've talked about capacities here. Uh, we've talked about discipleship capacity and congregational capacity and stuff like that in the past. Where this leads us to is discernment capacity and, and I think the ability of our churches to, A, form our people in the ways of Jesus because in a grey zone moment like this, there's plenty of temptations to head down alternate paths which yeah. are not the way of Jesus um, but also to embrace the the evangelistic opportunity of this moment there is so much up in the air at the moment and I think the myth that oh, everyone's just secular out there and not asking questions is a false one people are asking questions they said it before I think it was the George Hunter quote look for the gaps between idols that's mm. where the evangelistic opportunities are so that's what I would say Great. That's super encouraging. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, just a reminder, if you are listening and you're like, wow, there's a whole host of uh, resources that have been referred to and you want to know what they are, you can subscribe to our mailing list and we'll let you know there. You can head to rebuilders.co and uh, sign up there. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.